In this true crime law and order podcast, the episodes are presented by two separate yet equally ridiculous individuals, one who researches the actual crime and the other who recaps the episode. These are their stories. Well, hi. Hey. We're here on season three. We're season three already. This is really wow. insane. It's it's remarkable. We are we're pretty incredible. That's how I feel right now. I feel like this podcast is a dream come true. I absolutely lo- love doing it. And even where we are right now, like with what we've created and the content that we're thinking of for the future, I just think we're so I'm so pleased with us. I'm so yeah. proud of us. I you know, I'm famous for starting projects Same. or ideas for projects and just having them on paper. And never coming to fruition. So this is really special. Yeah, we've actually, like, done a thing. We did a thing. Well, I I have some things to talk about. Same. I feel like it's been a few weeks. Okay. I first want to tell you that I came across an article that mm. the title of which is Christopher Maloney shows off his butt workout for men's health and says, I catch flies with my ass cheeks. <laughs> <laughs> Can I tell you, I was at the supermarket yesterday, and the Men's Health, what, or one of those magazines that's yeah. supposed to be about, like, you know, working out, but I just, like, look at the cover. Yeah. Um, it had Chris Maloney on it, and it said, Chris Maloney's, like, workout, and it had, like, yeah. how he gets those big arms, how he gets the, and it says, and how he got the ass that broke the internet. <laughs> I was literally just about to read that quote. <laughs> I catch flies with my ass cheeks like a Venus flytrap, is his quote. Oh. God, you know, I would love to know that skill. Yeah, I would love to witness it. At least. <laughs> Same. I also, uh, I have something super random, but it's just very 90s themed. Uh-huh. You know the song Vibology by Paula Abdul? Yes. I, a, I love that song. B, I currently have it on like a playlist <laughs> I'm listening to, so I hear it pretty regularly right now. Uh-huh. C, I think what makes that song so incredible is the backup singers who are like straight up opera singers singing the word (laughs) vibology and there's just something ridiculously hilarious to me of somebody who is clearly so so talented like a really talented singer singing something as ridiculous as vibology as a backup to paul abdul in a very serious manner (laughs) i just think also, vibology needs to come back as like a term. This is yes. Paula Abdul's moment if she wants to take it. <laughs> because, you know, everything's a vibe right now. That's true. How has vibology not been covered by like, I don't know. Miley Cyrus. Olivia Rodrigo. I just, why not? I'm with I you. I love her, by the way. Anyway. So I know that this episode is going to come out in September. So this is going to feel like a little bit of a trip back in time to be talking about this this moment. But mm. The Real Housewives of Beverly Hills. Are you current? I am. That was the first thing on my list I wanted to talk to you about. Oh my god. Oh my god, Matt. I thought I wrote that. I wrote that. (laughs) Oh my gosh, that's funny. Okay, well you go for it. You you do it then. Uh, As we said, it's going to be a little bit of a time warp. So for those of you who are currently watching, the moment we are at right now, Erica just got mad at Garcelle for nothing at all. And um, we're seeing the episode after that and how everyone's reacting to that and the big article that comes out and blah, blah, yes. right? So yes. that's where we're at now. Erica. The sobbing. This this is like, <laughs> I have thoughts. I have said I, on this thought. podcast many yes. times, 
I want to look at this like a true crime. I'm going to yeah. not consider she's a, a reality star, yada, yada. Yeah. And I'm trying to give her the benefit of the doubt so hard, you know? Yeah, but then you saw her bad acting. It was so bad. It was Ma- so, If this was a true crime and it wasn't a reality show and I saw that on like an interrogation tape or something, yeah, I would be like, come on. That sob, like I want it as a ringtone. It was oh. so ridiculous to listen to. Oh. I was Number trying two. to be open and honest. What are you saying? Who are it's you? It's so hard. What are you saying in the bathroom by yourself on, on mic? I was trying to be open and honest. Right. What are you talking about? Right. Oh, my God. And it's like, or it's so damningly wrong. Like, mm-hmm. clearly not not real emotions. Totally misplaced and appropriate, yeah. It reminds me, in a lot of ways, of the, the woman who murdered her child, and then they, like, sprayed silly string all over the graves. Yes, uh, like, D- uh, Downs. Uh, yes, Diane Downs. Diane Downs. Yeah. Yeah, it's just like, the, this footage is weird, really weird to watch. And I think it's damning, to be honest. I do, do too. Wow. What else? Do you have any other things? Uh, Yeah, just real quick. Last season, you said a phrase that I wrote down because I thought it was just so (laughs) wonderful. (laughs) And I thought it might be a fun thing we could do. You mentioned it as an idea, and it kind of like, we let it dissolve into the ether, and I'd like to recall it. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) We were talking about how at the end of episodes, Stone and Robinette often have what you called poorly placed platitudes (laughs) and i would like to see if you would be interested in doing a segment at the end of our show Uh because sometimes i feel like we end our crime we talk about it a little bit we do our ratings and then we're done yeah and it feels like it would be nice to just have like a a a, poorly placed in between (laughs) yeah something to just clean the palate i love Um, it and is the goal for it to, like, be an actual, like, idiom that is out of place or, like, a made-up idiom? It could be whatever you want it to be, basically. Okay, great. Just another way to end the episode instead. <laughs> great. Love and it. And just to make us laugh, basically. Poorly placed platitudes. <laughs> I love it. Um, so that was one thing. And then the other thing, it's just a life thing. I got a tattoo yesterday. Of the infinity sign? On my lower back. <laughs> just for myself. <laughs> no, I got a tattoo. You know what I got. but I do. Listeners, I got a tattoo. My first ever tattoo. I love it. It's on my forearm, and it's California poppies, and I'm just in love with it. Now, is it on the, like, underside of your forearm or yes. the top side? It's okay, on the so underside, like... so on my wrist kind of side, which yeah. I love because the stem, he made it look... And I'm not, probably not intentionally, but it kind of looks like veins, the stems, mm, you know, mm-hmm, and it's right where mm-hmm. my veins would be. I just love it. It's California poppies to, you know, be a testimony of my time here in California. And I just wanted to shout out the uh, place we went. We went to Golden Eagle in Santa Barbara, which you recommended to me. Mm-hmm. And many other people did as well. And they took us as walk-ins. They were really nice. They fit us in. They were honest about, like managing our expectations on time and everything. Mm-hmm. And we both got tattoos. They were really just so great to both of us. And uh, my first time getting a tattoo, I left it totally up to him to design. I wanted to like sort of make this like a little therapy moment for me. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not good with surrendering control or <laughs> the reason I've not gotten a tattoo so far is because like, oh, what if I don't like it? Yeah. Um, so yeah, I just, I gave him some photos of, 
things I liked, and he came up with something beautiful. I'll put it up on the Instagram if anyone is interested. It's really cute. But yeah, just a shout out. I love it. So the artist's name is Grant, and you can find him online on Instagram at Grant Luckett 805 That's G-R-A-N-T-L-U-C-K-E-T-805. Super talented, and if you're in the Santa Barbara area, that's the best way to book him as well. So just a shout out. Nice. Yeah. Yeah, for listeners, again, you're, this is a little bit of time traveling because as we're recording this, Matt has not yet made his journey across the country. But by the time you're listening to this, Matt will be in New Jersey. Mm, yes. So as of the season premiere of the show, this is now a bi-coastal podcast. Now when we like are catching up at the beginning, <laughs> we'll actually have a lot to talk about. <laughs> Maybe. I have a recommendation. Oh, okay, good. I'm ready. Well, okay, it's not quite a recommendation. It's a, I watched this, and maybe somebody else might want to watch it. Mm, Okay. It's a Netflix sort of like limited series. I want to say it's like five episodes of a show called, I I think it's called How to Become a Tyrant. Oh, okay. Something like that. It's narrated by Peter Dinklage, Mm -hmm. and it's all about how, how people sees dictatorship power and i think that's really interesting to see like how how people can convince the masses that they are the one person who should be like leading this country or whatever and the one thing so i think that's interesting and it like the show starts out with somebody with like a a historian or or some uh, academic professional saying all of us like to think that we would not be like swept up in a tyrannical rule but i guarantee you you would be and so it's just like this interesting thing to think about like how everyday people kind of get swept up in these weird dictatorships yeah and so it talks about like idi amin uh talked about saddam hussein it talked about uh adolf hitler it talked about uh joseph stalin and it was the one thing i will say is like it's kind of interesting from that perspective but the format of a show is not my favorite because they sort of did it like a like as though somebody had asked like how do you become a tyrant and they were like well here's the playbook and so they're like step one is this da 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 and if you've already mastered step two you're ready to move on to step three Um, so like that that's a little dumb and cheesy to me yeah but the, the content is i think kind of interesting okay yeah i think that's that kind of thing is interesting too because it reminds me of cult leaders too Totally. And how people could easily, you know, you all think, we all think we're not going to be susceptible to be in a cult, but what we've learned from experts and from watching things about like Nexium and yeah. um, the Everyone Rajneesh. Is. The uh, Bhagwan Sri Rajneesh. Ba- yeah, yeah. The Rajneeshis, yeah. It's like, they're ordinary people and um, oftentimes, quote unquote, smarter people are, are targeted. People yes. who are, you know, more likely to be cunning and and discerning are targeted because you know these are people that they want in power in their cults afterwards so you know a lot of people think oh i would never and that's crazy that's insane but it's so easy to see how you know things that are well-meaning can just sweep you away and then you're in it well and here's the other thing i will say that i was thinking about the whole time that i was watching it i was like listening to the steps of like it was like okay you need to first have like connections of like people in the military who can like do you know torturing and killing for you or whatever but it was really interesting because like every single step along the way was like exactly reminiscent of donald trump Mm, 
And I was like, ooh, this was like way too close for comfort. And, you know, Hitler's first coup failed. And then he came back 10 years later and took over Germany. So there's always room for nightmares, I guess. Yikes. Yeah, that's that's disturbing. Anyway. I wanted to recommend, I might have recommended this already, the podcast Dr. Death. I don't know if you have. Okay, so first season is great. I loved the first season. I started listening to the second season last week, only to find out you can only listen to the first one unless you have subscription to Wondery. Oh, I hate that. I'm so pissed. So now I don't know how how it ends up being, because I'm, I'm not doing that because I'm broke, but the first episode of the second season was great, so I'm kind of bummed, but eventually... Is it- is it um different things that could kill you, or is it about like true crime murderer stuff? True crime murderers who were in the medical field. P.S. Mm. I am not current on To Live and Die in L.A., but there is an, a 10th episode that oh, just yeah. came out. It's a good one. You got to listen to it. Is it? Yeah. Okay. I, will. yeah. I won't spoil it. Great. Um, I'm also, I wanted to announce I finally finished Someone Knows Something. I've listened to all <laughs> six seasons. Dang. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm back on the podcast wagon. It was great. I highly recommend it. Many of them are still unsolved. Many of them have updates available. The website's great. So someone knows something. Solid, solid, solid podcast. And um, I am back on Sinisterhood. Oh, so good. Oh, I'm so glad. I started right from the beginning again, and I've surpassed where I left off. So I am... Oh, I'm now, loving it. Someone Knows Something is is episodic or serial? I forget. It's serial. Okay. Should we get into our episode? I'm ready. Okay, now here's the thing. We ha- we haven't made our guesses for season three yet. Yeah, we haven't made any guesses for the season yet. Do you have any or do you want to wait for next week? Let's wait for next week. Okay, so we'll start after this first episode. Yeah, here's the thing. Episode one, they pick up a piece of evidence with a pencil. <laughs> so I feel like no. that should be credited to me. I don't. I don't think that's how it works. As a matter of fact, it, I know it's not because we made it up. <laughs> Based on the rules I just made up, it does not apply. Yeah. Wow. <sighs> Fine. Okay. Well, I'm. I think I'm going to have to lower my pieces of evidence picked up by a pencil guess for next year and just go for two or something. Yeah. And I. I think I'm. I didn't have any guesses for this year, so I think I'm going to have to just kind of come up with my own. Yeah. Do my own thing, maybe. Love it. <laughs> All right. Well, this is season three, episode one of. Law and Order, and mm-hmm. it is an episode titled Skin Deep. Ooh. Was was Skin Deep a chain of uh, stores in your area, or is that something that was specific to, like, Southern California? Oh, I don't think so. I've never heard of a store called Skin Deep. Oh, I think it was kind of like a Bath and Body Works type thing. Oh, that's cute. I would have thought it would be like a Claire's or something. <laughs> no. Uh, okay. The episode opens in a diner. With some beat cops. So the, I'm now I'm mad. <laughs> I mad. Know. Now I'm actually mad because I could have gotten beat cops and evidence picked up by a pencil. Listen, if you put those on your list, if you keep those on your list, I will give you both of those items. Oh, thank God. But anything you put on your list that is different from last season, if it happened in the first episode, you can't okay. get it. Okay, I'll, I'll take that. I'll take okay. that. Okay. Perfect. <laughs> Okay, so these beat cops are ogling a pretty woman who's getting a coffee to go and, you know, just kind of making remarks about her, which is rude. And uh, then we follow her for some reason, so I don't know why we started with the beat cops, but uh, she is next seen walking up the stairs of an apartment building. 
And she knocks on the door and she's like, Mr. Decker, Mr. Decker. And he doesn't answer. She walks in and it kind of looks like a like lofty apartment workspace. Very, very New York loft mm-hmm. vibes. Very open. Very open. Big. Brick. Exposed brick. Lots of grid <laughs> system looking thing. It's 100%. like tile floor yes. on a grid. Windows yeah. that look like a grid. <laughs> <laughs> so she keeps walking in. She's like, Mr. Decker, Mr. Decker. But um, it, he's not responding. And this workspace appears to be like a photography studio. And there's like, because there's like these large prints on the wall of like beautiful women not wearing much clothing. She keeps calling for Mr. Decker. And eventually she comes upon, as we all suspected, his dead body. What? <laughs> He's dead on the ground with a pair of scissors stabbed stabbed into his back. Ouch. Ouch. Talk about talk about getting stabbed in the back. Also, now that I've like read more true crimey stuff and watched more true crimey stuff, it feels like somebody could survive a stab wound in the upper back. Like the worst it could do really is like puncture your lung, right? I guess I can let I mean could or you, you bleed get to, to death. I guess you can get to the heart from the back too if you if you're nowhere yeah. to stab. But and it's a long enough knife. I yeah, guess I just always like, think about those things where they're like, he was stabbed seventeen times and right. survived, and it's like, yeah, what? that's true. And then one pair of scissors did this guy in. Anyway, mm-hmm. so Logan and Soretta arrive, and they do a little sassy cop talk with each other and with the other folks on the scene, and they're kind of also being like a little bit as they are through the entire episode, like, gross about the women that they're talking about, which is not mm-hmm. surprising for them. Nope. And we learn that the woman who found Mr. Decker's body uh, was supposed to be there to, like, be photographed by him. And Logan is kind of like, that's weird. Like, you were arriving to a photography session, and he, the body is laying there, like, in pajamas. And so he's like, that's weird, like, if he was supposed to be working, why was he in his pajamas and then stabbed in the back? So, mm-hmm. s- sort of strange. So, then we get the title sequence, and I decided to make a quilt with some very <laughs> elaborate stitch patterns. And I was nearly ready to, like, f- you know, finish up the last seam when the title sequence wrapped up and we came back. Ah, uh, I can't wait to see it. so we're back at the diner and they're talking to the woman who found the body and she says that she had been working at the mall when mr decker gave her his card and said that she was beautiful and she could be a model then we cut to the medical examiner and we learn that there is a pair of prints on the scissors one single pair of prints Hmm. and the emmy says you're looking for a black widow spider Logan and Soretta are like, what? And he's like, don't they kill their partners after sex? And then he tells them that the victim uh, had semen and vaginal secretions on his body. uh, So indicating he had just engaged in some sort of sexual activity shortly before his death. And they might have enough DNA to be able to match to the killer. And so I guess we're now at the era of like DNA being more real for Police investigations, I guess. Yeah, it's like, what, 92 now, right? I think we're in 93. Oh, see, there you go. Maybe, no, you know what? I think you're right, 92. Because mm. didn't the show premiere in 89? I think so. Okay. So 
da, 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 da. So we get a quick scene at the station where they have their <laughs> discussion about how to do detective work. And Cragen's like, mm-hmm. why don't you try doing your jobs? <laughs> and they decide to start with the appointments that Mr. Decker had on his calendar on and around the day of his murder. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm surprised I never considered? What? Maybe he was just having like, he was trying to make a really difficult decision with somebody mm-hmm. and they were playing rock, paper, scissors and he was mm-hmm. paper and he like, they just took it a little bit too far. Too literally. Yeah. That could happen. I mean, that happens. So. Happens all the time. So, so they go to a modeling agency who a meeting with this woman was on Decker's calendar and She's like, yeah, like, I have as little to do with him as possible. She basically says he's a skis ball, and she didn't want him around the, the she calls them her girls, the, the women she employs as models as part of her agency. Mm-hmm. And so they're like, okay, well, then why were, why was, why were you in his schedule? And she says, I was in his schedule. He wasn't in mine. And she says that he barged in around five telling her that he needed work and for, he needed her to send him models and she told him to leave. So then they interview a model who was on his appointment book and she tells them that she needed Decker for his work contacts. Uh, essentially, <laughs> by the way, this actress, uh, <laughs> wow. So she is, she's a kind of, she's an older model, one would say. Uh, she always talks about how she's a little too old now for modeling. She's 38 years old. Right. And she says, you know, I'm not getting booked on covers anymore. I'm just getting catalog work and it's kind of slowing down. And so, uh, you know, she also knows that Decker was a skis, but she needed work. And so she had been, you know, in contact with him to try to get jobs. Is this the fitness girl or the other one? This is this is the blonde woman who is doing a really bad Southern accent. Okay, okay, got it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Uh, so she says that she would never sleep with Decker and she didn't even work with him that much. Um, oh no, I'm sorry. This is the fitness woman. It is. It's fitness ponytail. Fitness ponytail. Okay. (laughs) Not the Swedish French braid Southern actress. Mm, Got it. Got it. This is like straight off the cover of a fitness VHS. Yes. Yes. Got it. (laughs) So, uh, they ask her where she was during the time of the murder and she's like, what? And then two other girls walk in and they're presumably his daughters or her daughters. Uh, one of whom is Claire Danes. Uh, I love Claire Danes. Could you believe? I couldn't. I was like, oh my God, Claire Danes. Uh, <laughs> when I when I looked up this episode before I started watching it, she was like the main photo. And I was like, Claire Danes? Hey. I know. I I was waiting for her all episode. I was beginning to think that they had mismatched it. But then she like pops up. Did you watch and like the 1996 Romeo and Juliet? Uh, yes, I did. And I, I did at the time. And I loved the okay. soundtrack. Oh, the soundtrack is amazing. Oh my god. One of the best soundtracks out there. Everybody's free. (laughs) (laughs) So she, her daughters are like, what's going on? But she sends them to, sends them to their rooms, like, get out of here. And she tells Logan and Soretta that she had had dinner with her ex-husband the night that Mr. Decker supposedly was murdered. And they had had dinner together and she got home around nine. So they call her ex-husband to confirm that alibi and they're like okay checks out like i guess we'll keep moving on to the next appointments on his calendar 
Okay, Matt, this is it. So the next scene is straight up out of the Brenda Dixon Welcome to My Home video. Oh. Is it not a like shot for shot recreation of that? This it's the so woman. So good. And I love you know that video is my bread and butter. It's so good. If for anyone out there, if you have not watched Brenda Dixon's and it's D-I-C-K-S-O-N, uh, Welcome to My Home, you absolutely need to go look at that on YouTube right now because it's a treasure. And specifically, please try to find <laughs> Devin Green, comedian Devin Green's uh, voiceover versions of yes. it. Yes. <laughs> they're usually easy to find if you do just like a little bit of searching. Yeah. Um, they're all just spectacular even the original video on its own is <laughs> yes i was gonna say find the original one and watch about like five minutes of it and then go find the devon green like voiceover version of it well hello <laughs> <laughs> welcome to my home so anyway so the woman is doing bicep curls in <laughs> it's just so weird matt she's in her living room doing bicep curls wearing again a straight up jane fonda outfit and she tells the cops that she wasn't involved with decker and that she had like worked with him at a boat show oh sorry that at the time of the murder she was working at a boat show and they confirmed that so they're like okay this this woman's not worth our time but by the way she is she takes up a lot of screen time in this episode despite having very little interesting to contribute <laughs> I mean, she really was shooting for the stars. Oh, boy. I mean, that Southern accent was one of the worst Southern accents I've ever heard. And it's like, we get it. You're a quote-unquote aging model. Yeah. You're trying to stay in shape. Stay I in shape. I got it. <laughs> <laughs> so back at the station, they are kind of discussing what could be the motives for this murder. And Cragen is like, wait a minute. He was a photographer begging for work, but he had a huge apartment full of expensive equipment. So how was he paying for all of that and affording his lifestyle if he was so desperate for work? So, of course, they decide to investigate his financials. Mm-hmm. And they talk to his CPA and say that he recorded or reported 68000 in income. And they're like, da-da-da-da-da. And then he's like, that's what he reported, or that's all the income he reported, and kind of implies that he had non-reported income. So they're like, uh-huh. And then his CPA just tells them that Decker was working as a pimp. Like, th- that's, he just like throws it out there, which I'm like, I feel, yeah, anyway. <laughs> so we go back to the Brenda Dixon woman, and the bad Southern accent, <laughs> and they're like, hey, uh, <laughs> she opens the door, welcome to my home. Um, And they ask her about this story or, you know, perhaps accurate, you know, fact that Decker was working as a pimp. And she's like, yeah, he was. He asked me if I wanted to do any sex work. Of course, that's not the phrase they use in the show. And she turned him down. Mm -hmm. But he would, like, pressure her every time she saw him. So he was really trying to get her in his, I guess, roster of sex workers. Right, but she was too busy uh, doing javelin and uh, shot put and powerlifting because she's an aging model. Or the uh, that video. Oh, she. You know what else she could be in is the uh, the uh, gymnastics dancing video. What is that called? What you know the one, right? Which one? Oh my God, Matt! I can't, you should know this right off the top of your head. It's uh, <laughs> it's one of the best things I've ever seen. Hang on, I'm gonna find it for you. I feel like that was like a thing, though. Weren't there like a million gymnastics dancing videos? 
Um, this one's like especially fantastic. Mm. Uh, it's like people from the 80s doing the most high-energy coordinated dancing. Oh, I I think I, I... Show me, but I think I know what it is already now from you okay. saying that. But it reminds me of the, uh, the hip-hop country video dancing. Have you seen that? I don't think so. <gasps> oh, that's a classic, too. That's the one I'll send you. <laughs> it's called... Yeah, the video is called Country Hip-Hop Dancing. Um, it's okay. the first one that comes up on on youtube highly recommend highly recommend watch (laughs) (laughs) so back at the forensics lab a specialist tells logan and soretta that they found files on his computer this is again such a weird scene and he's like but they're password protected (laughs) as though that's not part of like their responsibility as a forensic technology person to get past password. I don't know. So uh, he's like, what do you think is on these that you, you want so badly? And that's, you know, so important that you would password protect it. And Soretta just says, quote, I would not say this word hookers. (laughs) Right. I couldn't even at this scene. So then he sits down and tries the password hookers and the screen pops up. A, a message that says, like, hi, stranger, you lose. Are we watching Are You Afraid of the Dark? Or this Goosebumps? was so, so stupid. <laughs> so dumb. I couldn't even believe it. Was, it was like a Clarissa Explains It All level yes. computer programming yeah. thing. Oh, my God. Do you remember the games that she would play on her computer? I sure do. Oh, my God. They were the best. <laughs> so, but then they are, they're like, okay, well, his password's not hookers. So then they decide to try his birth date, and that gets them into the protected files. Apparently, wow. people didn't know about not choosing your, like, uh, social security number or the word password. So they're letting us know that there's someone out there who is careful enough with his files to password protect them, but not careful enough to not use his alphanumeric birthday. Do you know what I heard recently that mm. I actually think is really clever is... Somebody at work told me that we were talking about the like security questions that you get asked if you have to reset your password. Mm-hmm. And one of uh, the people said that they know somebody who, no matter what the question is, they always answer the same word. Like, and it's just a random word like pancake. And so that way, uh, like, A, nobody would ever guess it because if it's like, what was your first car model? And the answer is pancake. Obviously, yeah. no one's going to guess that. And then it's the same for everything. So she always knows what it is. That's really smart. I Isn't hope. that smart? I think that's really smart. I hope that's really I smart. I think so, too. If there's any techno- technology experts out there who disagree, feel free to send us an email and let us know. <laughs> so... Looking over the files, they noticed that the initials of one of the women in his database is A.B., who is uh, Angela Brandt, the first woman that they talked to, Claire Dane's mom. Mm. And remember, she said that her alibi was that she was at dinner with her ex-husband. So they go talk to the guy who was supposedly hiring A.B., to find out if it is Angela and like what the story is behind her doing sex work uh, for Decker. And the guy that supposedly was hiring her is some like ad executive Mm -hmm. who apparently did hire Angela for Monday evening, the night that Decker was murdered. And he says like, yeah, she was here that night. She was like really nervous and all worked up. And he says, she asked if we could skip our appointment because she wasn't in the mood. And I can't remember if he says, like, but I said no. (laughs) Right, right. 
So back at the station, they decide, okay, Angela Brandt was worked up. She like, oh, maybe it was she did skip the appointment. So that's kind of how he's not her alibi. Oh, right. That makes sense. So they decide they need to get Angela's fingerprints to see if they match the scissors. But unfortunately, they don't have enough probable cause to get a warrant for her fingerprints. But then they remember that when they were talking to her, she was like super, like, I need to go. I have an aerobics class I have to get to. Um, And so they're like, she was talking about going to an aerobics class. I bet she has a locker at her gym. So they head down to the gym where she takes aerobics classes, find out which locker is hers, because apparently the lockers are assigned to people and not just like daily check-in ones. Mm -hmm. And they get fingerprints off the front of it and head back to forensics, and they are a perfect match for the scissors in Decker's back. Ooh. So... With this, they get a warrant to search her apartment, and Logan picks up, (laughs) this is where he does it, he picks up a pair of her underwear with a pen, and they go back to test it, and it matches the DNA found on Decker's body with like 88% accuracy or something like that. Due to the timing of everything, they can now place her at the scene during the window of the murder, so they go and arrest her. And in the pretrial hearing, she is represented by public defender Shambhala Green, who we will see throughout the series. Love her. I do too. And uh, Angela pleads not guilty, but bail is set at $100,000. And in a meeting with ADA Stone, they tell her and uh, Shambhala Green that they're charging her with murder too. And, uh, you know, Green is like, that's reaching, you don't have a case. And she says to, says to Stone, if you want to press this, I will clean your clock. <laughs> I liked that. Ooh. Before she kind of like walks out in a dramatic exit, uh, Angela says that Decker was, quote, primordial slime. Killing him w- was like penicillin killing the clap. All right. How, that just rolled off her tongue. <laughs> It really did. And also, and she phrased it in such a way that Stone is able to basically assume that she just admitted to the murder, Mm -hmm. uh, which it does sound like. But DA Schiff is like, we don't have a motive. And she technically does still have her alibi, which her husband is still supporting. So they're like, okay, we have to break the husband's alibi and find out how to prove that his alibi is a lie. So they go to the restaurant that Angela and her ex-husband were supposedly having dinner at that night. And the cashier at the restaurant remembers them, remembers Angela and her husband there, and says, like, they had a big fight, and they both stormed out long before 8 p.m., and they he saw them walk in opposite directions. So now we know that she wasn't at dinner till 9, and so they can assume that she could have had motive, not motive, uh, opportunity for, to commit the murder. Mm, right. So they go and talk to the husband, and he's like, oh, yeah, I don't really remember we finished dinner. And Robinette's like, you don't remember having a screaming fight with her and storming out of the restaurant? And he's like, oh, yeah, I guess. Like, it was a fight over child support. She says she needed more money uh, because he told she told him that Decker was gouging her over her fees. So the ex-husband knows that Angela was doing sex work, and Robinette is like, okay, so... You said you were here with her until 8. If we get you in court, that's called perjury. So we need you to, like, recant that and tell us what actually happened. So he agrees to 
uh, be deposed and testify against Angela. And he tells Robinette that Angela had called him right after Logan and Soretta had visited her the first time and told him to say that they were at dinner until nine to provide an alibi. So it's not looking good for Angela. Not at all. In court, they bring in the Brenda Dixon woman, the bad Southern accent. And she's on a bicycle. Um, She (laughs) is sweating. She's got a weight in one hand and a kettlebell in the other. (laughs) (laughs) She's wearing a shirt that says, nothing tastes as good as skinny feels. (laughs) So... She says, she testifies that Angela had told her that she had borrowed money from Decker, and when she couldn't pay him back, she started doing sex work for him. And this had all started about seven months ago. And even though Angela was angry with Decker and didn't really like the arrangement, uh, Brenda Dixon woman says that she, she never said anything about hurting him or wanting to kill him. Shambhala cross-examines her and asks her about her feelings for Decker. And she says, I hated him and I hope he rots in hell. So Mm. she kind of like creates a, maybe some doubt that there aren't other people who would want him dead. Mm -hmm. Shambhala also gets the ex-husband on the stand and continues to do a good job of building reasonable doubt because uh, the husband and Angela had been fighting for custody of their daughter, and Shambhala implies that that would be motive for him to frame Angela. Shambhala also, she is pulling out no punches. She files a motion to suppress the DNA evidence that they had gotten at the scene because the evidence was only, as I said, like an 80% match. And so she's able to get that ruled as inadmissible. Mm-hmm. They have to find a new way to put her at the scene of the murder at the time. So they go back to interview the, f- uh, the very first woman who managed the modeling agency, and she tells them that Angela's daughter, Tracy, Claire Danes, had also been having her photos taken by Decker. So then they go and interview Tracy's schoolmates, and, and we learn that Tracy had supposedly been like bragging to everyone about, quote, her photographer boyfriend. Mm. And her so, friends are awful, by the way. Her schoolmate her, friends or whatever, I don't know if they're friends or not, they're terrible. They're mean. Yeah, they're really nasty. nasty. So they also tell Robinette that Angela had found out that Tracy was sleeping with Decker because she saw, she found Tracy's portfolio of photos that Decker had taken of her. So they get Angela in a meeting with Stone and Robinette, and they offer her a plea deal, but Shambhala talks her out of it, saying that the daughter will never take the stand to testify against her mother. And Stone and Shambhala meet with the judge, and Shambhala tries to say that the daughter's testimony isn't relevant, but the judge orders a psychiatric exam of Claire Danes to see if she, like, what the impacts were of her dating, or not dating, but... Uh, being assaulted by this older man and her mom doing sex work and her getting her photos taken, all that. And so Dr. Olivet uh, evaluates her and she asks if her mom knew that she was sleeping with Decker. And she says, yes, and that my mom told me to stop because she because she didn't want me to end up as, quote, a prostitute. Again, their words, not mine. Ugh. Claire Dane says she needed Decker, that he made her feel safe. And Dr. Olivet asks if she thinks her mom killed him because of her. She also asks, she doesn't really answer that. She also asks how her mom felt about her being a model. And she, Claire Dane, says that her mom said it was a bad life. 
uh, her mom wasn't dedicated enough to being a model, and but I am. So Eesh. she's kind of like, I'm stronger and better than my mom. Yikes. Yeah. So Dr. Olivet concludes that something is missing here because if she was so wrapped up in Decker and her mother killed Decker, then she would be enraged. So, like, something's not matching up. Right. Because she's like, mothers will do anything to protect their daughters, so maybe Claire Danes actually killed him. And that explains why the DNA match was only 80%, because it was the daughter's DNA, not the mother's. Mm -hmm. So they retest the DNA from the scene and find that it's a 100% match for Claire Danes. Ding, they ding, talk ding, to ding. The, <laughs> they talk to the husband again, and we learn that Angela and he were conspiring together to protect Claire uh, after she had murdered Decker. Stone says, we're dismissing the case against the mom, Angela, and we're now ch- charging Claire Danes, who is now in custody. And she tells them that he was grooming her, that he was telling her they would always be together, and that he would make her a model. And then that night after they had sex, she he basically just told her, leave and never come back again. And she thinks that that's all her mom's fault, because mom had told Decker to stop seeing Claire Danes. And Decker told Claire Danes that her mom was working for him as a sex worker, and she was worth more to him than Claire Danes ever would be. Yikes, this is disturbing stuff. Yeah. So then he like makes fun of her. Uh, again, she's a teenager. He is a middle-aged man uh, who just assaulted her. She telling her she isn't pretty enough, she, and he makes fun of her body. And when he got up to turn around, she grabbed the scissors and stabbed him in the back. And that is the end of the first episode of season three called Skin Deep. Skin Deep. Ooh, models. It's, it's like I hear the theme song to Popular in the background. <laughs> I feel like maybe it's just because we were watching, we just did the SVU one recently with models, but I feel like mm. they work models into a lot of their storylines. They do. And... They do. I agree. Well, I have no predictions or guesses for what true crime this is. Unless, no, that's too recent. I was thinking about the photographer guy who shot the Lady Gaga video that ended up getting pulled. Oh, no, no. This this actually was not based on any true crime. Oh. So this week, I'm going to tell you the case of Dr. Thomas Burchard. Okay, I don't think I know that name. Okay, well, in, you can find all the sources on the website up on the show um, page when we get that up. But I want to spotlight one of them. It was a write-up in Elle magazine by Jessica Testa from 2019. It was mm-hmm. just the best resource I had. I had nice. most of the information I got from outside of some of the um, uh, more climaxy parts of the story. I was able mm-hmm. to get from her article. So really highly recommend. It's beautifully done, well-written, and just tells the whole thing almost from beginning to almost end. Yeah. Great. So Thomas Kirk Burchard was born in the early 1950s in Boston, Massachusetts, but he grew up in Virginia for the most part. Okay. His father had been an architecture professor, and he ended up getting himself a job at Virginia Tech as a founding dean, which is okay. why they ended up uh, relocating to Virginia. And Thomas lived a pretty standard life, you know, pretty normal, nothing of <laughs> note. And okay. he realized sometime in late high school that he wanted to go to medical school. Okay. So after graduating high school, 
He's accepted into the University of Virginia, and in 1973, he graduates from their School of Medicine, and he decides that his focus, he wants to be um, specializing in child psychiatry. Okay, I don't like where this is going now. <laughs> so, he completes a uh, he completes residencies at Cincinnati Children's Hospital, Massachusetts General, and US, UCLA, okay. all of which are known to be constantly named some of the nation's best top hospitals across the board. Yeah. Eventually, he would open up two offices in the Community Hospital of Monterey Peninsula in Monterey, California. Have you ever been to Monterey? No, I have not. Oh. Is it nice? It's beautiful. That's, it's, you know what? It's kind of, in a lot of ways, similar to Santa Barbara, but like much, much smaller and just like really charming, beautiful views, like really lovely. Oh, I have to visit someday. Yeah. So he, um, this is where he ends up settling and he has a career that will span 40 plus years, um, most of which in Monterey. Okay. So Thomas will get married in his early, I think, 30s, but he never has any children with his wife. And despite working with them constantly for a living and showing a penchant Mm -hmm. for loving them and wanting them, he just never has any children. Okay. Not much is made public about his first wife or his marriage besides that in 2001, their their divorce filings were finalized and... Within them, it's clear that she had been the one to ask for the divorce. Okay. Uh, Her name is not released. (laughs) The reasons cited refer to Burchard giving thousands of dollars to women he'd met online, (laughs) all of whom had, quote, suggestive screen names. Okay. According to reports at the time, he denied having any sort of romantic or sexual connection with any of the women uh, he gave money to. He just said that he liked to help people out, and he was generous. All right. So, that's all we really know of that marriage and how it ended. I mean, wouldn't that be great if we did live in a world where people who did have more resources were just, like, generous and gave it to people? Here you go. Yeah, that would be great. (laughs) That would be great. And if anyone out there is one of those people, um, You could subscribe to our Patreon. (laughs) You can just send us a message. We'll give you our Venmos. (laughs) Exactly. So, his unique brand of generosity, which, as I said, I would love to encounter in somebody. It would continue on past this divorce, but in the early 2000s, he meets Judy Earp on a group trip to Vegas with mutual friends. You know what's funny? I know that Wyatt Earp, like Mm -hmm. E-A-R-P, is a famous name, but when you said Earp, all I I could think of was like U-R-P, like the sound you make when you're about to throw up. (laughs) (laughs) When I think of Earp, I think of Wyatt Earp, but I think of the dog character in Five Goes West. That was, like, named, like, Wyatt Burp or something. Oh, my gosh. That's funny. (laughs) Um, So the two meet on this Vegas trip through mutual friends, and they instantly bond because out of their group, and unusually for being in Vegas, neither gambled or drank. So they kind of were along for the ride and found each other. Okay. The two of them start spending a lot of time together after this, and on the trip, they discovered they had a lot in common. They both love children, uh, Burchard working for them, and Earp, who was 59 at the time, had four of her own, uh, okay. three of whom were still in, in the age of being in school. Both of them had been married previously, and both really enjoyed magic. Uh, not not Magic the Gathering, the card game, <laughs> uh, not like witchcraft magic, but like performance magic. Uh, yeah, like, like uh, yeah. Siegfried Roy and all that. Like a magician. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> 
And not only did Burchard like magic, but he was a member of L.A.'s Magic Castle. And he attended multiple conventions a year with his new girlfriend, Judy Earp, who didn't seem to mind any of his generous tendencies. You know, I'm I'm not going to say that magic isn't great and requires talent and skill, but if I were dating somebody and they told me they were currently like in magician school, that would be the last date that we would have. That I would agree with, but I would say, the, you, do you know about like LA's Magic Castle? I don't. <laughs> so there is a place you can go. You have to be a member, I believe, unless you just see like a basic show. But it's like oh. the most premier magicians, the most elite magicians. And then they put on shows for each other, sort of. And they like party together and have these okay. like grand events and stuff. And you have to be like actually a magician yourself, I think, to be a member and stuff. So it's like this prestigious thing rather than like school. But I think he had to go to magician school at some point okay. in order to be a member. So. <laughs> I don't know. Magician school. Right? I don't know. And so the magic thing, he even (laughs) ends up bringing his magic to his work life. So he would do magic tricks for the kids that he would treat. He's like Patch Adams. (laughs) (laughs) And so, you know, many patients end up staying with him for a long time because of just his bedside manner. So despite him specializing in children, many of his patients stay with him through adulthood. Or okay. end up bringing their own kids to see him. So I don't know. Maybe the magic thing wasn't a bad business model after all. Yeah. The couple continued dating for almost 20 years. And the two ended up living uh, together in Salinas, California. Okay. She ends up working as a real estate agent there. And together the couple raises goats, horses, donkeys, mini pigs, and chickens on their estate. That's cute. That's very cute. So they're living a nice life. He's doing his... psychology thing she's a real estate agent um three of Earp's children live with them the three that are in school okay and by all counts he treated her children like like his own always uh they were all very fond of him in return one thing everyone who interacts with this guy agrees on is like we said he's very generous and Mm -hmm. not only did he help support judy's children but when his patients had needs that he was aware of, he would donate money to the families for textbooks and medications and sort of out-of-pocket things they might otherwise have to go without. Nice. Right. So this is a little background on Thomas Burchard. I, I don't I, – I'm scared now because – I know. You've painted a cute little life and I don't know what's about to happen. I know. It's hard because I'm – right? <laughs> so fast forward to 2019. Okay. And Dr. Burchard is now in his 40th year practicing at CHOMP. Yes, I said CHOMP. That is the acronym for Community Hospital of the Monterey Peninsula. Oh and my God. I, I would never not want to work at CHOMP. Oh my God, that would be the best. CHOMP. Where do you work, CHOMP? And it's, of course, in all capitals, so it's like CHOMP. <laughs> yes. Uh, that's, imagine what I would want to be is the graphic designer for Chomp, so that you are the person responsible for coming up with all of these fun logos. Endless. Endless Endless ideas. (laughs) (laughs) So, anyways, he and Judy are still together doing their thing, and Judy starts to show heightened concern for Brichard's well-being. She's starting to see signs of possible dementia in him, and he didn't always make the most practical decisions anymore, or, and he started to not remember, not remember simple things. 
Okay. Dr. Burchard leaves Salinas, California on March 1st, 2019 and flies to Las Vegas and he calls his girlfriend, Judy, who um, it was mentioned in a few things as his fiance, okay. but most of the time his girlfriend. So I'm going to go with that. Uh, after he arrives to Vegas, he calls her and tells her, hey, I'm in, I'm in Vegas. I'm on this trip. And she's not really thrilled by the order of operations here, obviously, because, you know, <laughs> I mean, if Davey went on a trip and just called me when he was there and it was out of state, I think my head would explode. <laughs> yeah, same. So she's not thrilled about it, but she's like, okay, well, please be careful and just don't stay too long. He was only going to be there for the weekend, he said. And he has a place that he rents out there um, to tenants sometimes so that's usually where he goes when he goes to vegas so trips to vegas aren't the most unusual thing for him but it was just totally out of nowhere without warning okay judy is expecting him home by the fourth because he went there on the first and when she hadn't heard from him on the third she called and had police do a welfare check at the address but they didn't find him so she had them do another one the next day because she still hadn't heard from him and they'd been talking every day Mm-hmm. And either time, there's no luck. So time continues forward, and Earp is growing increasingly worried. And she has them police open a missing persons file on him. And the search begins for her now missing boyfriend. Mm-hmm. On the morning of March 7th, so three days after she was expecting him to be home, police are alerted of an abandoned blue Mercedes Benz near Lake Mead, which is about 20 miles out from Las Vegas. Okay. And when police search the vehicle, they find gloves, evidence of a small fire on the front seat, and blood on the back seat and the driver headrest. That's not great. Not great. Um, blood on the driver's headrest. Okay. Mm-hmm. In the trunk, wrapped in blankets and bedding, they find the body of 71-year-old Dr. Thomas Kirk Burchard. Oh my gosh. Okay. An autopsy would reveal that he died of blunt force trauma to the head from a small cylindrical object... And grand jurors were reported to have an audible reaction of shock when viewing the images of his body. Ooh, because it was real bad? Real bad. Okay. So, what happened to him? So, Earp, right away, had a very good idea of who police should be looking at. And the name she provided just happened to match the name on the car registration. So So, now we're looking at someone named Kelsey Turner, who's 25 years old. Matt, I, I, now I think I know where this story is going, and if it's going the way I think it's going, I'm going to be really disturbed. Mm. So, Turner, originally from Arkansas, but living most of her life in California, was an aspiring model and promoter and all-around, like, youthful party girl. Okay. Uh, her social media is, like, you know, the typical sort of, like, influencer of that type you'll see. So, bikinis, modeling shots, um, promoting, like, small, like... Ooh, makeups and, you know, things like that. Like when you get those emails, hey, you yeah. want to promote my thing? What, so, remind me what year we're in again. This is now, two, so this is 2019, so pretty okay. current. Okay. Turner won eighth place in a Maxim contest, Maxim magazine contest, and oh. she was featured in Playboy Italia as a cover girl, something she wanted to bring over to America. She was trying mm-hmm. to be in Playboy. Okay. And she and Burchard met sometime in 2017, and Earp was very aware of, of Turner. Okay. So, uh, Earp being Burchard's girlfriend, remember. So there's mm-hmm. a huge question mark here for me, 
one of the few scenarios that could be happening here with her knowledge of of Turner, it's never really quite explained. So in my mind, this is what I think. We can make our own opinions only. Either Burchard and Kelsey had a romantic relationship, indeed. Okay. And Earp and he had some sort of agreement where this was okay, since she knew about it. Or Mm -hmm. she had no idea and he was cheating on her with her. Right. Or she assumed the relationship was platonic and was okay with it. Okay. Or lastly, he truly did have a platonic relationship with Kelsey. Those are the only options that I can think of where she knows about it and is aware of it for years, you know? Yeah. So yeah, that's just a, an unanswered question for me. Okay. Regardless, it doesn't really seem to change too much in the story. Um, Judy was never a fan of Kelsey. She wasn't sure how they had met but she was fully aware of her relationship or um, her relationship with her boyfriend. And mm-hmm. there was one man who on camera, he doesn't want to be on camera. So he's like faces obscured who said he's positive that um, Burchard had met Turner online, which would make sense, but that there's no real corroboration. Judy Earp doesn't believe it was a sexual relationship. She says in interviews at least, and mm. which she might, you know, and, or they might be private and just not want to talk about it. Who knows? But True. she's, yeah. It's an afterthought for her. She's not concerned about that that at all. But she says that he had a propensity to helping people that were financially downtrodden. Mm-hmm. And he especially liked to help people that were, quote, drug addicts or prostitutes or on their way to becoming that, end quote. Those are her words, not mine. Okay. She didn't like that he was going to Las Vegas because he was going there to see her at that house. And that house is, yes, the one that we said he rents to people. Mm-hmm. Um, he rents it to her and was paying $3,200 of the rent monthly for her. Hmm. Kelsey Turner is living in Las Vegas in this house that Brochard rents out and is paying. doesn't say if that's the full rent, but I would imagine it is the full rent on it. Mm-hmm. She's living there with her four-year-old son and her boyfriend, Kelsey Turner. is living there okay. with her boyfriend and son. and In the house that Dr. Brochard was paying for. Correct. Okay. And this is not the first large investment he has made on her behalf. Before living here, he had been paying rent on a house for her in California, where she lived with her kid and her very able-bodied mother. Okay. Um, With the two of them together in pictures, her mom is literally like Amy Poehler in Mean Girls. Like, exactly (laughs) that character. Uh, That's It's exactly who this woman appears to be. Also, that Mercedes that she had, that Mm -hmm. was found in the desert, uh, before she had that... He had made payments and signed a loan on a BMW convertible for her. So, for all this, it looks very much like a sugar baby kind of sugar daddy situation, at least. Yeah, yeah. Which, you know, if everyone is aware and consenting, I'm not faulting anyone for. Yeah. But that is not what the, like, that's what the details seem to point to. But who knows, right? Right. If this is true, though, why would Kelsey then want to be involved in cutting off her supply? Because it didn't seem like there was any end to her getting financed by him. Right. I mean, the whole reason he went there was because she called him for help, claiming that her boyfriend was beating her up. Hmm. And so he was going there to, like, help her out. And so why, if, if she is to call him out of the blue and say this to him, and he has the immediate reaction to just go to her, that doesn't point to any sort of discord between the two of them you know yeah so and it should be noted that within that month 
um, from when she made that call like earlier that month on record at her local police department, there is a domestic violence suit against her boyfriend that she did file. So, okay. And he also was aware that she had a boyfriend that was living there too, because she would call and complain about him sometimes. So again, Mm. it doesn't seem like he cares that she has a boyfriend either. Okay. So Judy Earp said, quote, I told him repeatedly, these are not the kind of people you want to be associating with. And she had told him to come home when she spoke to him on March 2nd. So when she hadn't heard from him on March 3rd, that's what gave her such concern. Because he said, yeah, I'll, you know, I'll be home tomorrow or the next day. Yeah. Okay. According to her, Turner had extorted at least $300,000 from Burchard that she knew of alone. And she thinks she's being wow. modest. Wow. Mm-hmm. She said that this was most of which was going to the rent because he did not agree to pay the rent on her first place. He was just getting a place for the two of them. And then through manipulation and all this whatnot, over $300,000 was taken from Burchard. Wow. She said that the two of them had a falling out in 2018, Burchard and Kelsey Turner, and he stopped paying rent on that place for good. And then that's when she and her mother, who were living there in California, had to move out. And that is what prompted Kelsey to move to Las Vegas in the first place. And it wasn't until she had moved to Las Vegas and couldn't find a place to go that eventually they reconcile, and then he posts her up at a new place. Okay. So the falling out they had was because of all the money that he felt she was extorting from him, according to Judy Earp. Mm -hmm. And at this time, it's alleged that Kelsey was threatening Brashard to make claims against him that would cause Chomp to fire him and would ruin his career. Okay. There's no details about what these allegations would have been. And when his phone was found and his files were searched on his computer, there's nothing to suggest anything like salacious to do with children or anything like that, which is okay. what I think is being implied from this. Yeah. Um, but there's nothing like that on any of his like software, or whatever computers, um, I mean, I mean hardware. Yeah. <laughs> but there were allegedly lots of pornographic images of women in general. Yeah, okay. Which could be, you know, who knows Anybody's what the nature computer. of them are. Right. <laughs> so in any event, he still is ending up paying rent up until the time he goes there on that Las Vegas place. So it's entirely possible that he still just had a sugar baby relationship with him, with her. Um, and, you know, it's entirely possible that the other way, like Judy Earp is saying, that she was, you know, threatening him and she was he was giving her money for that reason. So it really could mm-hmm. go either way. Yeah. Also on the phone were texts from Kelsey referring to Earp's distaste for her, so she knew that Judy didn't like her. Didn't like her, and she mm-hmm. said, "quote uh, that she's on the shit list with me, and if she gets me evicted, I'll kill her." Hmm. The mystery continues, but police have their suspects. In addition to Kelsey Turner, obviously, they also have her 27-year-old boyfriend John Kennison on their suspect list, and one of the other roommates who lived on that house. Yes. In addition to her living in that house with her son and her boyfriend, she had two other roommates living there. Wow. It was, okay. bit, it was a pretty big big place. So the, one of those roommates, 30-year-old Diana Pena, is also on the suspect list. Hmm. Also living at the house at the time was a man named Jer- Jeremy uh, Eskerich, I'm going to say. Okay. But he was cleared from the sus- suspect list pretty early and was the only one at the house that was accounted for. So mm. he'll come up in the story, but he's not one of the suspects. Okay. In fact, during one of the welfare checks, um, he was 
outside of the house, locked out, unaware of why he was locked out and like what the welfare check on this guy was for. So the police get there and he's like, I live here. I don't know why I'm locked out. I'm, I live here <laughs> and my roommates are MIA. So, hmm. so weeks after the attack, Turner is arrested in Stockton, California. She fled Las Vegas and in mid April, after learning of her warrant, Di- uh, Diana Pena turns herself in. She's the other roommate. Hmm, okay. She fully cooperates with police from the from the jump. Kennison is the third one to be arrested. That's the boyfriend. He's arrested a few days after Pena turns herself in. Mm-hmm. And while Turner and Kennison are pleading not guilty to murder, murder charges, Pena pleads guilty to accessory to murder in exchange for her full testimony and cooperation. Ooh, yeah, okay. Mm. At the time of her arrest, it turns out Kelsey was pregnant also. So she'll give birth to a baby girl in custody. And okay. it's not, I don't know if she uh, maintains custody of her child or not while she's in jail or whatnot, but she gives birth to a baby. It's uh, likely Kennison's. And at Kennison's appointment with the court, where he was to be scheduled for like a preliminary hearing, mm-hmm. he, hel- he holds up a note to the camera, to wh- whoever's there, reading, Love you, little mama, with a you instead of a, with the word <laughs> you. And I wonder... Is it like just, is he a really big fan of America's Best Dance Crew? Or <laughs> is he talking to Kelsey? Either way, <laughs> it's like ridiculous. So <sighs> he has to be admonished by officers when he does this. And he's really taken the situation seriously, clearly. Yeah, um, clearly. In early June, they all appear in court. And Diana takes the stand to tell her version of what she witnessed during Dr. Thomas Burchard's visit. Okay. So here is my paraphrasing of what she says went down. And this is the friend. This is Diana was... Pena, the roommate. Yeah. So she okay. lives on the same floor. Uh, she lives upstairs of the of the house with Kennison and Kelsey and uh, Kelsey's kid when he's there. Okay. And then the other roommate is downstairs usually. I think he like kind of sleeps on the couch. Gotcha. So Diana says, March 1st, Dr. Thomas Burchard arrives at the house and beforehand, Kelsey had been trying to get everyone out, cleaning like crazy. Um, she didn't want him to know how the house was being kept. It was kind of a mess. And she didn't want him to know how many people were living there. But didn't she call him to come there? Yes, she did. <laughs> but she wanted everyone okay. out before he got there. That I was mean, her plan. Wouldn't you, wouldn't you be cleaning prior to, like, hurriedly having to clean? Oh, right. So they were. it wasn't like, I wouldn't say it was hurriedly, like, on March 1st. Just oh, prior to the visit. That was what their instructions were. Okay. So on March 1st, Diana goes to work, and all was pretty fine when she left. No signs of discord. She's a bartender, so she works night shifts. Only she and Kelsey were there at that time, and Kelsey's kid. So it didn't look like it was a full house like Kelsey wanted. Mm -hmm. The next day, however, fighting breaks out pretty early, because the other roommate, Jeremy, who lives downstairs, has a young blonde girlfriend... And she came to the house really drunk in the daytime. So this is the kind of kind of vibe we're getting here. Vibology. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, was very chatty with Dr. Burchard. It's like a new person at the house. Okay. And at one point, they all need, someone needed something from a convenience store. And Dr. Burchard was sober, so he offered to drive them. But only the girlfriend ends up, only the girlfriend ends up going and Jeremy stays behind. Okay. And this makes Kelsey really insanely angry and jealous. And she tells her boyfriend, Kennison, that they're trying to steal Thomas from her. And it prompts Kennison to run downstairs and punch Jeremy in the face and start fighting with him. 
And when and Jeremy is like, F this. So the car comes back and Jeremy and her take a taxi and get the hell out of there. Jeremy and his girlfriend, Chelsea. And Turner continues fighting with Burchard for the rest of the day. So now at the house, it's just Burchard, Turner, her boyfriend, and Diana the Pena. Kid. Oh. The kid gets taken early in the day while they're at the convenience store, I believe. Um, by one of her friends for the weekend. So someone came and picked up the kid. Okay. And so basically she starts banishing Burchard to her son's room, which is now vacant, and says, like, stay in there. I don't want to see you. And is arguing with him. And uh, I think Diana Pena describes it as, like, she would get mad at him, scream and yell and say she needed space. So she would say, stay in my kid's room. And then at some point she would get so mad and worked up from talking to someone about it, Kennison or Diana, that she would just burst into the room and like go all out on him and scream and yell and, you know, back and forth. Very reality show kind of moment. Yeah, I mean, this is sounding like a, a cast of winners so right? far. <laughs> right. So at some point they end up using Burchard's phone to look for directions. I don't know if it was when they were going someplace with him or not, but they're in the car with Burchard. And they're looking at his phone to use directions because he's not familiar with the area. And Turner has the phone and she goes through allegedly finding both suggest- suggestive texts and pornographic photos of her mother back and forth between Burchard and her mother. Okay. So this sends her into a rage. And she tells Kennison, her boyfriend, when they get home, who runs up the stairs, kicks down the door to the room that um burchard had been banished to Uh which is her son's room remember and he rushes in holding a metal bat and this is what diana saw and when she ran into the room afterwards he had a huge red and purple bruise on his temple and was bleeding from his head Hmm. and she knew she never saw him swing the bat she knew he needed a hospital it was very obvious and he was still conscious and so she asked him you know like can i can I take you to the hospital? Can I get you something? And so he says yes, and he she like escorts him down the stairs over her shoulder. They go through the garage from the inside of the house and put him into the back seat of Turner's car. And she's okay, like, so <laughs> what looks to be happening is the boyfriend hit him in the head with a baseball bat, and then the friend comes in. He's still alive, mm-hmm. and the boyfriend lets her escort him down to the car. Like the boyfriend goes in the room allegedly hits him with the bat and yeah. then like leaves like he attacked him and he was done you know oh 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 okay and then diana enters in the, the room, room the whole time no diana didn't enter the room until kennison walked out got that makes sorry much i didn't sense. i didn't uh, i probably should have said that <laughs> so yeah so now diana escorts burchard down the steps into the car into the back of turner's car and says i'll go get someone to to drive you and before she can't drive I don't know why she didn't drive her. It's not her car, though. Um, okay. It's, it's uh, Kelsey's ter- car, so she likely didn't have keys. Okay. Um, before she leaves him, he said that he didn't want to... He, he wouldn't say anything about what happened, and he doesn't want to get Kelsey in any trouble. So he would tell police or whoever at the hospital that he was mugged um, because he was afraid of them. And he says, you know, he he also mentioned to her, and she said he said, quote that they'll probably kill me. Hmm. But she didn't think, despite seeing him in the state, that that was a possibility. 
Like okay. she didn't think that these people were killers that she lived with. So she was like, no, 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 I'll, I'll go get somebody to come take you. So she, she, she's crying. She gets out of the garage and she gets uh, Kelsey and then Kennison joins them in the, in the kitchen. And she says, um, you know, he's, he's her, he needs help. And they say, go clean up inside and we'll take care of it. We'll take care of him. And she says, she just like did it. She just started cleaning up and she was like traumatized and she went upstairs and she was cleaning the room like she was told to. And mm-hmm. she hears arguing downstairs and a scuffle. So she comes downstairs and she hears Turner yelling in the, um, into the garage, knock Thomas out. And hmm. allegedly she's arguing with Kennison, telling him that he's like a bitch and that he is like a wuss and all of these other words because she's seen other people be able to knock people out with no problem and why can't he do it? And Turner ends up going into the garage and shutting the door behind her. Um, and then she's in there for a little bit. And when she comes out, she tells Diana, it's too late. Yeah. Kennison walks out of the garage afterwards. His hands and arms, according to Diana, are covered in blood and there's blood splattered on his face. And he's holding a gun, which is also covered in blood. Oh, my God. They ordered her to clean up the room. And she did, because she was terrified, she says. Well, she then, I mean, after th- I don't yeah. blame her. <laughs> yeah, so she starts cleaning up the room. And then when Turner and Kennison exit the room, she looks into the garage. And she sees a, like, terrible sight. Um, she yeah. sees him in the back seat, like, just totally unrecognizable. Yeah. They come back in the room, uh, call out to her, and they say, we have to get out of here. So they take her, Turner, and then they go pick up her kid, and they go to Diana Pena's boyfriend's house for the night. And so they all drop, Kennison drops them all off there, and then leaves, and it's just Diana, Kelsey, and her son staying at Diana's boyfriend's house for the night. Kennison meets them back up the next day where they start bouncing around from friends' houses, couch surfing, and, like, random motels until staying at Mandalay Bay. And then Mm -hmm. Kennison took the car with the body, and she never saw it again, according to Diana. So Kennison takes the car. Mandalay Bay's really expensive, isn't it? I think it is. That's what I I thought. But who knows? Maybe it's, Mm -hmm. like... You know, the poor man's expensive place. I don't know. Yeah. So. I mean, I guess she was extorting him for money. That's so she true. probably had some. That's true. And who knows what he what he did for money. So so after Keniston leaves with the car, Turner uh, returns to the house and she hires a cleaning service and says that to the cleaning service for the house that the party got really rowdy and they need people to clean it up discreetly. The cleaning, the cleaning crew did see and report red stains on the walls, but they mistook it for red wine since they thought it was a wild party, and that's what it kind mm. of looked like. Mm. And it did look like like a party house, because I think essentially it was. Yeah. And they did find the fake story given to them as to why the door was kicked in pretty suspicious. Hmm. They were said they said it was like, oh, they just couldn't get it open, jam the lock or something like that. So they do report that. And then the trio start staying at the Rio hotel. I don't know where that is, but I think the Re- I think the Mandalay is nice. And I think the Rio is not nearly as nice. Maybe. So Turner at this point arranges for Jeremy, the other roommate to meet them there for the key because he's locked out. So this mm-hmm. is after the wellness check. Okay. 
and they request for him to get the door fixed at the apartment at the house Uh rather and they say here use this credit card and they give him dr burchard's credit card and the (laughs) info to use it okay and he said no thanks And he also said it's extremely unusual for the house to be as clean as it was when he got there, meaning after the cleaning crew was there. So he does not fix the door. He does not take the credit card. um, But he goes back to the house, gets the key, and goes inside, and is like, this is weird. Okay. During this time, someone from the uh, doctor's phone was texting Earp, fishing for her banking info as though it was Dr. Burchard, but he was already dead at this time. And so someone is texting his girlfriend, Judy Earp, back in California while he's already dead, fishing for her banking info. And she caught on to it pretty quickly because, A, it was a writing style that was not consistent with Thomas. Mm -hmm. And, B, he knew her banking info. So there was no reason for him to be looking for it. Yeah. When the car was found, according to Diana, all of them were instructed to turn off their phones, including Dr. Burchard's. And that's when they all split ways. So that's the end of Diana's testimony. So she says that that's what happened. Okay. And she split ways. She was trying to figure out what to do with herself. And when she heard her name was, you know, there was a warrant out for her arrest. That's when she turns herself in. Now, as far as evidence, blood was found all around the house, even though the cleaning crew was there. You know, they it's they weren't cleaning up a crime scene. They were cleaning up a house. <laughs> so right. blood is found all around in crevices and all these different areas of the house exactly corroborating what Diana says. Mm-hmm. And on towels that match towels from the car in the house, same towels in the car that are in the house, and they both have blood on them. <laughs> there's blood in the garage, and there's evidence of the cleanup, not to mention evidence that they left behind in a hurry at the Rio Hotel. Among the evidence they left behind, proving that they were at the Rio Hotel when she says they were there, were papers ripped from the doctor's notebook that contained his banking information, <laughs> passwords, and PIN numbers. Okay, I have to say something right now, which it sounds like all of these people were immensely, immensely stupid. I mean, (laughs) so, and despite all of this, the case is very complex, and the two assert their innocence. Their defense calls Diana a snitch, (laughs) and it seems that they're going to present either her or who knows, maybe another party entirely on the death of their friend, Dr. Burchard, they claim. Mm. So the trial was originally set for the summer of 2020. And it, of course, was pushed back because of COVID and all different things mm-hmm. and the complexity of the case. And no death penalty will be on the table for them, which seems to most in interviews I've read that it's a strategic move because it's really hard to get a death penalty conviction on a female. And hmm. so they want to get a conviction against her. So they've agreed to take death off the table. Okay. Kennison was interviewed earlier this year, the boyfriend, and he said, quote, we're not monsters. And he goes on to say, uh-huh. quote, I would never hurt him. I would never harm him. I never did anything to him. When I left, he was perfectly fine. <sighs> he claims that uh, Dr. Burchard was not a sugar daddy, but just a good friend to Kelsey, adding that he, quote, had a good heart. Earp, on the other hand, considers them soulless, in her words, and she likened Kelsey to Charles Manson. I have, I've come up with one more explanation for the situation that you haven't. Ooh. Is it rock, paper, scissors? Not for the murder. Okay. (laughs) For the uh, relationship with Kelsey. Oh, right, right. She could have been, he could have been, like, into financial domination. Oh. Yeah, that's true. Honestly. But, you know, there's people who 
will like want you to take their money away and financially control them. Yeah, that's that's absolutely. I mean, she. I wonder if that'll be part of her defense because we're still waiting for it. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, Turner's father has a GoFundMe to help with her legal fees. Okay. But it's been taken down. <laughs> um, there's a readiness hearing scheduled for November 11th, 2021. So keep your ears peeled. I'm going to try to remember to follow this case a little bit. Um, February 28th, 2022, the case will officially go to trial. And while Turner, in a 2017 Playboy interview describes herself as impulsive and loving of thrills and fun and someone who was living life to the fullest because it's the only one I have. Burchard, who falls under her spell, is remembered by those he knew as extremely generous and Earp goes on and Jessica Testa writes, if he saw somebody in need, he would literally give them the shirt off his back, which in the end, you know, that's Earp can't finish the sentence, but she doesn't need to. She believes his generosity is ultimately what killed him. End quote. And that's basically the end of the story. The case is still to go to trial. Um, I'm sure they have as much evidence as they need, but police are still, of course, asking anyone with information about Burchard's death to contact Metro's homicide section at 702-828-3521. That's the end. Wow. Wild. I am... (laughs) flabbergasted i yes that well okay number one i am a little flabbergasted because i was trying to from the very beginning connect it to the law and order episode Mm -hmm. and i was like you know because there was the aspect of like her being underage and so when you were like he's a child psychologist Mm -hmm. i was like oh my god no (laughs) like if this is a story about just like a predator child psychologist this is going to be real dark i kind of picked it i kind of picked it especially for that reason and tried to present it in uh, that way intentionally (laughs) you got me because when you introduced her i thought for sure that the story was she killed him out of revenge because he had been her therapist and abused her as a child. Yeah. I was, I was wondering if that was where we were going to go with it when I was reading the article itself too, because I thought, I don't know, this just looks so, yeah, I just, I wanted to try to present it in a way where I didn't give it away from the jump. (laughs) Good job. You definitely threw me a couple curveballs. Thank you. I thought, oh, wow. I, I'm glad it's a current, story so we can kind of see how it unfolds um i mean for me it's it's very cut and dry to me (laughs) i mean it's just so obvious what happened here um and you'll see when you look into like the the sources i provide and you can see like what these people kind of like how they present themselves to the world um Uh it you get a pretty good idea of who everyone and I'm not talking about how people look. I'm talking about like how you decide to present yourself to the world on social yeah. media, when you're doing interviews, how you're choosing to talk, the language you're choosing to use, like the tattoos that you choose to get and the placement of them, the hair colors you choose and like like just the different things. You just get a vibe. Like for instance, mm-hmm. you get a vibe from his girlfriend Judy Earp that she's very easygoing, very mm-hmm. credible. You know, she's like this cute older lady with pink hair and like she Cute. has this like great like colorful life and you just get this vibe from her she speaks exactly what she means and mm-hmm. she has a very like documented history with him whereas these other three people look like they are trying to present this image of like badassery 
Yeah. You know, like, uh, watch watch where I'm going. Like, look Cast what I'm doing. Of the Jersey Shore, essentially. Yeah, not even worse. Like, the kind of people who, like, their Instagram would be, like, wads of money and, like, guns. Ugh. You know what I mean? That's the vibe you get from Kennison. <laughs> and then from wow. her, you get total, like, I want a sugar daddy vibes. Like, 100% yeah. from all of what she presents, including her interviews with people about her life when she was trying to be a model and stuff. Like, before she... Mm maybe knew what she was going to end up doing. It's very, very incriminating. So yeah, it looks like they're trying to play up the, you know, she, how they look, have her looking in trial. Like we've seen what they do with like Jodi Arias and all these different yeah. people. They're trying to play up the, I, you know, I was pregnant in jail and I had a baby and, you know, I was swept away and this was my friend. And I don't know what Diana's talking about, but she's just, you know, Hmm. uncredible source so i'm sure they're gonna try to just drag her through the mud to to, to be continued yeah wow so interesting yeah kind of local-ish too right yeah where is monterey bit. um monterey's uh just like five hours north okay wow well how would you rate the episode Mm, good question. I didn't do this ahead of time. So on the fly here, I am going to give the episode itself. Um, I'm going to give it a B. Okay. I found it entertaining. Even the ridiculous moments I found mainly entertaining. And I don't remember, I'm trying to remember back. It's been two weeks or so now since I watched it. I'm not sure how inappropriate it was, but. It was not as bad as the SVU one we just covered. Oh my god. Yeah, if you're not listening, if you're not a member of our Patreon, we just did an episode on our SVU, or on our Patreon for the Law & Order SVU. And what case was it? It was, oh, I did it, I should tell. (laughs) 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 And we covered the case of the boyfriend rapist. It's it's not to be missed. Yeah. Um, For this one, I'll give the crime relativity, how they did it. I mean, it's a different crime, so just like the how they dealt dealt with the themes of the crimes. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I'll give it a I'll give it a B. Also, I don't think it was wildly yeah, inappropriate. I think I'll agree. You know, with I think you. that I'm... the things that they should be outraged about, <laughs> they were. Yeah. yeah, I think I would agree with you on how it dealt with things. I think I would probably just drop the watchability to a C plus. Mm, okay. Because there was like, I mean, I think they did okay. So yeah, yeah, C plus. Okay. Next week, we'll have a poorly placed platitude right here. <laughs> <laughs> this week's poorly placed platitude could have been, well, I guess not everything is picture perfect as it seems. <laughs> or I guess you could say a picture's worth a thousand words. And the other one would say, or a pair of scissors. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Uh, yeah, something about, like, photographer cutting up photos, scissors, mm. there's something there. Yeah. Next week we'll be, we'll be ready for this. <laughs> yeah. While posting comments on the internet can sometimes feel like screaming into the void, writing a review for our podcast is actually really helpful because it makes it more likely that people will find us. So go try it now. I agree. And I think you guys are all probably pretty popular and have a lot of friends, so I'm sure they would love to listen to our podcast as well, so call them up tell them about it 
That's right. And we love connecting with our listeners. So feel free to email us at rippedheadlinespod at gmail.com and find us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Ripped Headlines. And please don't forget to check out our awesome website. I love our website so much. RippedHeadlinesPod.com. There you'll find the link to our Patreon, which has some great perks, and you get the enjoy. You get the enjoy. And you get the joy of supporting one of your favorite podcasts. Also, a percentage of our Patreon proceeds, which is kind of like a Peter packed a pick of, pack of pickled peppers <laughs> tongue twister. It is. Get donated to the Equal Justice Initiative. So by supporting us, you're also supporting positive change in the world. Thank you so much to listening to Rip from the Headlines, where you get the facts and some fiction. We'll see you next week. And until then, stay out of the headlines. Bye.